This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Dr. John Abrams, chairman and founder of CESC. John, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm great. Thank you for providing the opportunity. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm just enjoying another sunny day out here in uh, Colorado. Cool. Ready to dive in. So, John, before we get started, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into the cannabinoid space. So, I have been interested in this field for over 50 years. Um, I've come from the Bay Area. I grew up in Palo Alto, and this was uh, starting to become common cannabis use uh, as I was in late high school. Um, it was one of the experiences that we had, and it has been part of my life ever since. I'm a biochemist and have been in biotech and pharma for a good part of my career, the major part of my career. And this has been an under theme or a, uh, you know, in the background until perhaps the last decade when I decided I would really try and understand the bases of cannabis science, the cannabinoid industry, and most importantly, how cannabis can unlock uh, the human potential and understand the cannabis mind. So let's, let's kind of dive into that. You've accomplished many, many things in your career here. So the CESC, what is it? Can you start there? So the CESC is an acronym for the Clinical Endocannabinoid System Consortium. It's a nonprofit, a 501c3 type of corporation that we started about five years ago. My illustrious clinical colleague, Dr. Jean Talleran, whom will also be on this podcast at a future point, and I started recognizing that to be in the healthcare space to be able to get grants, donations, and all, it felt best, and the best structure was to be in a nonprofit format. In choosing the name, we decided that we were, of course, focusing on the endocannabinoid system. We were taking a medical approach, thereby clinical endocannabinoid system. And because we're intensely focused on the need for collaboration, and partnership and sharing, we looked at this as a consortium. And so our name says it all. And the endocannabinoid system, for those who may be unfamiliar, can you kind of shed some light on exactly what that is? It's another system, another physiological system that has been recently described and discovered uh, as we, first of all, came to understand the structural and chemical basis of the prime active ingredient in cannabis, namely tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, as and this discovery was pioneered by Rafe Meshulam back in the 70s, I believe. Along with that, then a couple of years later came an understanding of what receptors, that is, uh, if the THC is a key, then the receptor is the lock that that key fits into to unlock physiological signaling. These are components then of a larger system, which has become to be called the endocannabinoid system. It has also evolved our understanding to include the 
natural ligand, the natural compounds that our own bodies make that trigger and function in this system. The endocannabinoid system is like any other system we might learn in biology, the circulatory system, the musculoskeletal system, reproductive system. It's another collection of ligands, keys, and receptors, lock and binding entities, binding proteins. It's a whole system that we need to understand and discover, and it is majorly influenced by phytocannabinoids as opposed to our own endogenous ligands, endocannabinoids. Phytocannabinoids are produced by the plant, the cannabis plant, and that was the entry into this remarkable field. From the endocannabinoid system, does the majority of people understand those areas? Is this like, can you kind of shed some light on that? Because I feel like we have conversations with some people in the space and they're surprised to hear some of this information. Yeah, I think more and more people are becoming aware of the endocannabinoid system. The entourage effect is really prevalent now within kind of the popular culture of cannabis, right? People are realizing that if they ingest just the, the THC molecule, they have a different uh, experience than if they ingest the THC molecule with some of the other phytocannabinoids like terpenes and, and other ubiquitous molecules within the cannabis plant. I would say probably the, the most well-known aspect of the endocannabinoid system comes in terms of how CBD and THC differ in how they interact with the, the human body. There's this CB1 receptor and CB2 receptor that kind of the general public has grouped into two categories that the CBD molecule interacts with your CB2 receptor and the THC molecule interacts with your CB1 receptor and one's in your brain and one's not. That's why one gets you high and the other doesn't. I think that's kind of like a, the general understanding right now, which it, there is so many more receptors and variables to consider when truly trying to understand how those molecules are interacting with your endocannabinoid system as a whole. And so one of the issues is that perhaps some of the popular knowledge that's out there is maybe not absolutely correct. And so I'm not sure I'm comfortable with a dichotomy the way you just described, with THC affecting CB1 and, say, CBD affecting CB2, if you will. I think that's probably not borne out by the gamut of scientific literature that's being created in this space. It's probably better to understand that there are multiple different classes of receptors of lock on and beyond CB1 and CB2. And these important entities are affecting other classes of receptors. And my own view is that one of the principal roles of CB2 is triggering on another class of receptors called the TRIP channels, TRP channels, uh, transient receptor protein channels. And this then fits in with many of the defined effects that these ligands, that these phytocannabinoids are creating. But I think it's overly simplistic to simply divide it as, well, one hits one kind of receptor, CB1, the other ligand hits CB2. I would encourage us not to be going down that pathway. However, it is useful if we look at how the endocannabinoid system interacts with other systems in the body. And you mentioned that CB1, the receptor may be predominantly 
brain or nervous system oriented or localized. CB2, probably a little more general, but has a much more prevalent localization in cells of the immune system. And it makes sense rather to look at the resultant biology as affecting, are you triggering through CB1 or are you triggering through CB2? But of course, CHC triggers both CB1 and CB2. So it reacts and it works in both. The system is nuanced. And then it goes on, there are other receptors in the, the class that CB1 and CB2 are in. They all have complicated names and complicated biochemistry associated with it. But the devil's in the details, and our mission is to deconvolute and explain this as clearly as possible to both the scientific and the lay community. But let's go back to one of the first things you were saying about differing with the way Kellen approached that. So it seems like we've got to understand and lay the groundwork for understanding exactly how it works. Where does that even begin? Well, again, the biochemistry and physiology of this is not novel. Many of the other systems that we study or understand in biochemistry utilize similar mechanisms or similar pathways. It's just, in essence, expanding the vocabulary list of what is in the human or what, what is in uh, the organism to understand how this works. It's not reinventing, it's just reapplying or fine-tuning or expanding the vocabulary. We add new receptor classes, we add new ligands, new keys that interact with that. I hope that that's kind of clear. It's not we have to do a lot of heavy lifting for novelty. It's more how do what we learn in pursuing studies in the endocannabinoid system fit into our existing understanding of how it works in the first place. Is the endocannabinoid system commonly taught in school? Uh, I think you know the answer to that, but unfortunately not. And it has been said that many med students are not even briefed in that yet. You know, it's only a couple decades old and med school curricula can often be, uh, you know, going back centuries or so, or, you know, there's a large historical record here. So a little bit, we're the victim of novelty in trying to place this into our overarching hierarchy, like I was just saying. And so part of our mission, I think, is to explain and understand this in the context of what we already know about existing systems. But at the end of the day, if we do our programs right and we meet our goal, then the endocannabinoid system will be core curricula in med schools going forward. What are those goals? Well, there's trying to develop programs that can allow us to understand, to deconvolute some of the problems or, or puzzles that we're seeing in this. Uh, I mean, and this sounds a little kind of not so clear, but one of the main issues that we've been facing in this is what we call a many-to-many -many problem. That is, the plant, uh, the botanical source, the plant, has a lot of different components that interact, as Kellen was referring to, uh, entourage effect or synergy or whatever. And we have many different receptors, many different locks that these fit into. And there are many different 
situations or doses or times of day or whatever. So it's this huge many-to-many problem. And our job is to try to deconvolute this and find system, uh, systems or systematic taxonomy descriptors that will help us understand and simplify this so we can clearly understand this has this effect in this context. Uh, another agent or another uh, phytocannabinoid has a second effect in, in this system. Together, they synergize. That is, they add the effects together or they compete. They block each other's effects. All this has to be worked out so that we can understand how optimally to use this product and enjoy it, whether it's for lifestyle or for medicinal purposes. I think that's really well said. And I want Kellen to kind of dive in here from just an undertaking of what John described. I mean, the complexity of that challenge is, is sounds like an uphill battle. Is, is that the way you hear it, Kellen? Yeah, I mean, but anything in the scientific world is an uphill battle. And I think that the CESC, how John described it, is the only way that the human race really tackles these kind of daunting obstacles, if you will, right? These kind of projects of understanding the the physical world around us, right? Um, it's not going to be one group. That's It's going to be a collaborative effort, individuals across the globe, right? And you can even see that we've just, we're on the precipice of kind of a logarithmic curve, in my opinion, associated with scientific research directed at understanding how this cannabis plant and the chemicals it produces changes humans' perception on the world around them, right? In terms of the psychological and the psychedelic experience that people have when they consume the plant. And I mean, the amount of literature that's published daily now is is pretty phenomenal, right? If you look at it from even 10, 20 years ago, and, and it's only increasing every day. And I think that that's really what it boils down to is it it's a daunting task to try to understand all how five or 600 different chemicals in one plant affect the human mind, right? And it's not going to be accomplished by five, six, 10 scientists with some pipettes and some Erlenmeyer flasks, right? In, in a lab, right? Like it's, it's definitely going to take a collaborative effort and a consortium to be able to push the scientific knowledge associated with this forward. And, and it, the other thing is it's, you could throw a giant army of people at it, but it, it's going to take time. These things aren't just um, checking the box, achieving the goal. Like it's, you're working with the real world. It's messy and you never really know what, what's going to come out of a lot of the experiments you do. It's, it's going to be guessing and, and going out into the real world and seeing what happens and then reporting on it. And then letting a lot of other really, really smart individuals look at what you did, kind of provide their critiques. And then they're going to go out and try to build on what you did. And, and that's science, right? It's, it, it's the only way to kind of move these kind of projects forward is by, taking that scientific approach, if you will. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked, the podcast. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind cannabis-infused getaway, I invite you to join me in the beautiful wine and weed country of Sonoma County, California. As a cannabis lifestyle guide, I've cultivated a -a one-of-a-kind farm stay experience where you can enjoy the casually baked lifestyle and the magic of sun-grown cannabis farms and vineyards. Now, if you're into wine, weed, or both, get ready to have a high time customized just for you. Learn more at casuallybaked.com backslash travel. That's casuallybaked.com backslash travel. 
And if I could just follow up on that, because that's an excellent uh, narrative there. I think fundamentally our approach in this is to provide some kind of overarching systematics or systematic approach. And I would outline that as understanding, on the one hand, the chemotyping, the understanding as well as we can the list of products that are in this complex botanical and making that list, uh, understanding what is there that we're talking about. And then on the other side, being able to quantify effects that we're studying in a reputable manner, whether it's physiological effects, mental effects, biomarkers, we use that term, uh, that's where a biomarker is a key indicator of a state change in a biology or in a physiological response. Um, But you have to approach this systematically. So if you can get your content lexicon established and you can get a series of reputable effects or outcomes quantified or measurable, you just start putting it together and deconvoluting as you go and drawing your conclusions. And I think fundamentally, this is the basis of the CESC approach. We're trying to develop and bring forward that kind of systematics into this field. I want to circle back on one thing you did say and tracking. So you mentioned tracking the effects that individuals have from different chemovars. And this is something that the CESC has already embarked upon in terms of the dosing project. You want to kind of elaborate a little more about the dosing project and how that has been uh, pivotal in humanity's effort to try to understand how these different chemovars cause different effects? Most certainly. Thank you for that prompt. So the flagship program of the CESC is, in fact, the dosing project that Kellen was just alluding to. This was a program that grew out of a challenge that my colleague Jean Talleran provided back in 2016, when, as a cannabis clinician, he was being challenged by his patients, recommend to them, what should I use? How much should I use? What is best for this indication? And sadly, there was no basis of this. And we came up with the idea that folks that are using these products, this medication, medicinal preparations, might actually be able to report on their responses and guide these kinds of, or provide answers and help guide our knowledge in this space. Jean Talleyrand is a bit of a rebel, and I really salute him for his view that rather than clinicians necessarily dictating to patients, his approach is let the patient explain to you what is working for them, and you keep track and collate that. So in essence, that was the heart of what we were putting together here. And we decided we we would likely be able to do this with a crowdsourced web-based query platform. And so back in 2016, we put together a proof of concept version of this where we would be asking folks, how much flour? And this was initially limited in scope because we knew this this project or this problem is broad. Again, in systematics, if you need to get started, define your scope, narrow it to the point where you could draw some conclusions. 
So we concentrated on asking folks about flour, not other processed cannabis products yet, because it is so complex, and asking them simply uh, how much they were using by route of administration of inhalation, thereby smoking, combusting, blazing cannabis, or vaping it. But it was restricted to that mode. It was restricted to flour, and it was restricted to the two top indications that Jean Talleyrand was seeing in his clinical practice, namely pain and disordered sleep. And so we put out a a web-based platform for this, and we were trying to ascertain, could we, based on this kind of crowdsourced reporting, come up with dosing guidelines for pain and disordered sleep for what people were using? And the answer was a resounding yes in proof of concept. And we presented on this uh, at Emerald Conference in uh, 2018. Uh, We've written up reports. Some of that can be seen on our website. So it is a very useful and fruitful approach. And now our goal is to produce version 2.0, which will be much more, which will be expanded beyond that. It will now include multiple modes of administration. It will be expanded to not just flour, but various processed forms of cannabis, uh, useful for oral and ingested mode of administration or topical. The indications will be expanded out, and the clinical survey platforms are expanding as well. In the proof of concept phase, we simply ask what kind of response on a four-category scale, no response, partial response, almost complete or complete response did you get? And we coded and analyzed the data that way. Now we're inserting other survey uh, modules into that, including mood assessment, psychedelic altered state assessments. These are all standard surveys that are being used in in the um, medical fields or uh, psychology fields. Uh, we've asked about adverse event side effects in proof of concept dosing projects. That will be slightly expanded and modified so that we can come up with what negative effects or what bad events may be occurring. But basically, this worked in proof of concept. And so we're very excited to be able to expand this. And it is one of our key flagship initiatives under the clinical correlates program of the CESC that we plan to pursue in the near term. How many different individuals did you need to feel comfortable with that study? And then I have a follow-up question after. So it's a great question, Brian. And let me just say that what we're basically doing is what's called a phase four clinical study, if you will. Clinical drug development typically follows a three phase development program, phase one, where you're looking for toxicity in the preparations that you're administering to to people. Phase two is looking to try and ascertain what that dose should be. And phase three is looking for efficacy. Am I getting the desired effect? This is a classical paradigm that EU, the FDA, that China PRC, uh, China FDA uses. This is very standard drug development. Once your drug is approved, you do post-marketing surveys. And these are typically referred to as phase four, 
where you're actually looking for what kind of responses beyond what the drug may have been uh, identified for. What about side effects that were not part of the initial study? So they tend to be broader. In our case, because of the way our models work, we were looking for statistical significance in our models, and we could just keep going, accruing uh, respondents until we hit significance. So it's not like we had to go in and negotiate with any agency up front that we will put 50 or 60 or 100 to get those kind of answers. But it's fair to say that for the THC responses that we were trying to measure in smoke flower, as we hit about 100 respondents, it became real clear. And so that answers your question. It's at that level. But of course, if you're trying to find nuances, you're trying to find what interacts with that THC, what terpenes or other components that are present, you need more respondents in order to tease out that complexity, in order to deconvolute that many-to-many problem. So I think, I mean, I'm answering your question simply, it's on the order of 100 or so to get started. But of course, our goal is to do much larger data set so that we can begin to deconvolute and understand what's either minor cannabinoids or terpenoids or other components, thiols, esters that are present in this, in this botanical, how they affect the response. The reason I ask how many is because obviously everyone handles flour differently, man, woman, time of day, weight. And for me personally, every time I consume flour, I'm hungry and then sleepy. So I might not be the best for that, but others might have a different experience. So I was wondering how you could feel comfortable in, in kind of segmenting all those data variables and then feeling comfortable with the output you have and understanding that, okay, we've, we've seen enough significant inf- difference to go forward with the next project. I mean, that's a great question, Brian, but if your survey methodology specifically is asking about that, and in essence, we are, we're talking about mood surveys, and mood surveys specifically can address uh, or do address questions of fatigue, calmness, tension, et cetera. That comes out of the analysis, doesn't it? Because you can tell if the bulk of your respondents are reporting that way, then you know that's what the response is. If it's subset, and I believe it will or it does, you begin to understand how that subsetting occurs and you begin to look at, well, what is behind that subsetting? Is it gender? Maybe, maybe, you know, probably not. Is it genotype? You might be able to, uh, you know, you're marrying these kind of work with uh, genetic screening that is increasingly popular. And so you've got that parameter. You can ask questions or we know about when did you dose? How much did you smoke? And most importantly, what did you take it with? And that is another aspect of this that we're seriously thinking about how to incorporate into this next version or the one after, the interaction term with other agents. Because we know we don't live in a world where all we're doing is consuming cannabis in isolation. What about with that beer you had? What about those who mix it with tobacco? What about other dietary supplements or uh, sleep aids or something like that? And we think that this crowdsourcing approach can help 
deconvolute or understand that, but we just have to ask the questions right and have it in a form where the data will speak for itself. When you said that, I had so many friends that came to mind of just wanting to just sit there and consume cannabis all day for a research study. So if that's what you're looking for, I'm sure we can put up an announcement. I'm sure we can love the number of applicants for it. You too, Kellen, huh? No, I'm too. I I get bored. You know what I mean? I'm not a big <laughs> fan of video games. Like I would need to need to find something to keep myself busy while I consume the that kind of cannabis. You know but I'm I mean? sure from a popularity standpoint, I'm sure you can find a couple of people that come to mind that would be interested in participating in such a study. Oh, we could totally make brochures. It would be sold out. I mean, we could really get a big data set. <laughs> well, interestingly, for proof of concept phase, um, we were recruiting through Google AdWords because as a nonprofit, uh, we got access to free Google AdWords or Google-supported AdWord capability. And so we were experimenting with, can we change the recruitment profiles through our our Google searches or directed Google searches? And there is a whole story about that in proof concept, how we were able to, for example, channel more respondents into our sleep indication arm when we saw that most respondents were checking the pain box, but not checking the sleep box. And we wanted to boost that number. And in fact, that's how you go. If you get significance in your model for pain because you have enough respondents and you go, oh, well, I don't have quite enough for sleep. I can't draw any conclusions yet. You try to recruit in sleep and then you start to see, oh, I'm at the same number that we're responding in pain and I see significance in my, my models and I don't have it in sleep. Therefore, either something is not working right or it is not so efficacious to sleep, which, of course, we know is not necessarily the case. I'm just kind of quoting you know, an example here. But the point is, this approach is dynamic. It's ongoing. You don't have to upfront postulate what your study size is going to be and then open it and close it. It can keep going. I think that's one of the advantages of this crowdsourced web-based phase four approach. I hope that's clear. Yeah, um, it, it definitely yeah. is. And I can only wonder if you use Google AdWords to try and attract people to your study. If I would have seen a Google ad that said consume cannabis for a sleep study, I would have assumed immediately it was a lie or a trick or some deception technique because that seems way too good to be true. And I'm curious to know everyone who clicked that because good for those guys. Guys, I want to talk to you today about one of our new partners, CESC. CESC is a nonprofit organization providing a compelling and complementary alternative. They represent the ability to harness a flexible, collaborative approach to scientific advancements. They are comprised of leading doctors and researchers in the cannabis and cannabinoid science space for almost a decade. Their act first, talk later operating principle has now led to a successful series of disruptive innovations in the cannabis science space. They need your help now. Join them, collaborate with them, or support them. Go to thecesc.org to get involved now. Together, we can change the world. It was more nuanced than that, because in those days, Google had uh, inhibitions on what you could use, and we were not able to put those kinds of terms in. So we had the slalom around the Google restrictions, which we did successfully. But there are, you know, of course, there's always ways, I guess, of getting these announcements out. But it worked. It worked. You know, we could we could show 
uh, increases in responding cohorts just based on uh, the terminology that we're using. But no, Brian, it was not quite as blatant as, yeah, smoke cannabis and respond to this study. I don't think it would have cleared Google back in 2017 and 2018. That would have shut down your site because Google would have been like, there's a lot of clicking going on here. (laughs) I want to just elaborate a little further on the dosing study. So the survey is one portion of it. Is there any scientific techniques or technology that's currently utilized to kind of understand what's going on in the brain? Um, And is that something the CESC is looking to to embark on or already has is uh, you want to kind of elaborate on, on some of the techniques that are used to look inside uh, the skull to see how this is really interacting with you from a biochemical perspective? Well, no, that's a great, great question. And we are extremely active in this space through a very fruitful collaboration that started a number of years ago when I was director of Emerald Science, uh, the Emerald Conference. And received across the desk a very interesting abstract from Dr. Jeff Tarrant, a clinical psychologist out of Eugene, Oregon, who had proposed and executed a study of smoked cannabis brains and QEEG, quantitative EEG measurements. So what that is, in essence, is putting electrodes on the surface of the brain, uh, of of the surface of of the scalp. Um, it's done very routinely in uh, medical sleep assessments, et cetera. It's been a part of neurology for many, many years. It's not invasive. It's, it's not a problem. And so he approached us at, at, Emerald, uh, at the Emerald Conference with this great abstract that really piqued my interest. But he had chosen a couple of strains for this study, and my sense was that was fine, but he was not really surveying the whole caniverse, as it will, as it were. And I was interested in seeing if he would be receptive to expanding that initial study to include strains on the other side. And for those of you who are listeners who understand strains, he had not included initially was the sour diesel or what we call the fuel aroma chemotype side. And so he was receptive. We added that in and produced the study with these three strains, reported on it at Emerald 2019. And that presentation is available on Emerald website. It's also available through CESC website. But the results have been very interesting to deconvolute and study. And out of that, we do see uh, patterns of response in cannabis users with these different strains that we can begin to understand maybe what some of the underlying fundamentals are. So this gives us a bona fide biomarker, if you will, on beyond simple survey responses. It's almost akin to being able to do blood work or something like that. It's a bona fide biomarker. In addition, in this study, he included surveys which I referred to earlier regarding mood, the standard Brunel mood assessment, and an altered state psychedelic questionnaire, which is also part of uh, that field. And we've been correlating and collating the responses and trying to map them to brainwave patterns, and we are making good progress. So going uh, into the future, one of the clinical correlates initiatives of CESC is to expand 
that clinical uh, the the clinical trial work, if you will, based on quantitative EEG and ingested, smoked, or ingested cannabinoids or cannabis products. So we're going to dive into predictions soon. So before we do that, we ask all of our guests a few final questions. John, you could sum up your experience into a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation. What would that be? Wow. Um, follow your heart and your interests. It took me many, many decades to get to the point where I could say I am completely involved in cannabis science and understanding the cannabinoid industry and the underpinnings of the cannabis mind. It was a process to get there to throw in uh, wholeheartedly in this space. Uh, I am exceedingly happy and content at the progress we're making. And so my advice, I guess, to those that come now or afterwards is try to recognize as early as possible what your goals and dreams are and go do it. I think that's perfectly said. Your personal experience with cannabinoids. Well, I don't think it's a, you know, it's a secret that uh, I have been a fan of, of the plant, particularly smoked cannabis, for over 50 years. I find it very beneficial for numerous reasons. Um, certainly the calm, calming and relaxation component. But for me, I find it, um, at least what I hang on the THC component, a strong associative ability, an ability to kind of link concepts and disparate ideas to come up with valid hypotheses that can be tested. Um, it's almost for me like a brain booster. And I guess I might put myself in the realm of what you might, and I mean, this is not self-aggrandizing, but a successful stoner. And I think I probably have been. In addition, I've been trying to understand the best way to consume and use CBD or CBDA, because of course, there's so much interest in that. And one of the approaches that we've uh, pioneer, not pioneered, it's an old approach. It's decoction, that is boiling botanicals and creating a tea out of it. But in contradistinction to a tea, which is perfusion or infusion, here you're actively boiling it. And so not only are you extracting components, but you may be changing them advantageously. In the case of cannabis, we know that there's a decarboxylation Chemistry that's important, that is, you have to take off one of the functional groups, part of the molecule, in order to have a certain range of activities. And I'm being oblique here because we're a big proponent of non-decarboxylated cannabinoids for biological effect as well. But the point is, is this gives a very approachable way to get CBD and or CBDA medication in a cheap and what I believe is an effective way, simply boil hemp or CBD bud and drink it. And I find that that works quite well. So we presented on the approach and the content that comes from this at the 2019 ACS, American Chemical Society, CANA subgroup meeting here that was in San Diego then. And again, details can be seen on presentations that are on our website. Interesting approach on how to acquire CBD uh, or, or ingest 
CBD meditation. So I guess I would say between THC cannabis inhalation, and I'm a big vape user at this point, and CBD decoction, uh, that's how I get through my day. I love the brain booster technique. That was, uh, that was one of my favorite ones. I'm likely going to steal that. So let's go on to prediction time. 10 years from now, 2031. John, will we have enough data and research to have personalized cannabis medicine? Well, I'm going to just answer that by saying I'm going to drop off the word cannabis medicine and say 10 years from now, what will the stage of personalized medicine be? Because um, we have to move that forward as well, right? I mean, we're not going to have personalized cannabis medicine without personalized medicine in general. I'm an optimist. I, I think we will get there, and I think it is the, the key. Um, there's some paradigm changes, of course. First of all, we have to be able to generate what is the person or generate information on who or what is that person. And that's a heavy lift because it's expensive to get that. And I mean, 10 years from now, I hope we have the resources that more people, not just wealthy uh, elites, have access to that kind of personalized diagnostic. Alongside or on the second track, you have the evolution in cannabis or cannabis science, cannabinoid industry and cannabinoid medicine. And so, yeah, there probably will be a marriage sometime in the future for this to be the best, but it's it's still a heavy lift, Brian. I mean, 10 years is, wow, it, it's coming fast. Kellen? I'd like to believe that it's there. You know, I mean, 20 years ago, we were still in the middle of the Human Genome Project, right? In 2001. Um, I could be mistaken on my dates, but it cost, what, $13 billion to analyze the first full human genome. And now I can go to 21andMe, right? Is it 21andMe? And they, it's 50 bucks. They send me a, a Q-tip. I swab my mouth, put it in there, send it back. And they're going to give me a pretty decent understanding of my genetics from for a significantly lower cost. So I think that as we continue to improve the techniques associated with understanding biomarkers um, inside the human body, as well as genetics, that that cost will continue to fall. And as that cost continues to fall, more and more of the population will be able to afford that kind of testing. Um, and as more of the population gets tested for their genetics, it creates larger data sets and efforts like what the CESC is embarking on with the dosing project. It'll be easy to kind of look at interdisciplinary data to be able to pull these correlations, right? And so I think in 10 years, it may not be like what you would see in Hollywood as far as like uh, personalized medicine. But I think that um, someone with enough motivation will be able to pull their 21andMe genetics data and put it into probably some sort of free software to pull correlations between, say, the cannabis they consume, their genetics, and how they feel about it. And I think that that would be a form of personalized medicine associated with cannabis. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but that is my thoughts on it. I mean, Brian, coming from uh, a less traditional scientific background, what are your thoughts on 
cannabis being a personalized medicine in the future. I mean, kind of walk us through that. Optimistic Brian wants to say yes and wants to agree with you guys. But the other side, Brian, here's our friend, Dr. Matt Moore, and says groundbreaking science is expensive and takes time. And I think 10 years is just not going to be enough time to learn everything we need to learn to understand all the data sets. There's a ton of variables and teams like the CSE, they're doing incredible, incredible efforts and they need help from outside parties. Like you were saying, John, like your team can do as much as they can, but need participants from outside studies. And I think that involves more people getting involved and contributing to the cause. So while I'd love for that to happen, I think the only way that happens is if more organizations kind of align with the CESC and people like you and I, Kellen, continue to contribute toward the cause to help raise awareness and to get people out there to, to contribute, whether it's information or to donate their funds. So I don't know. I'm going to have to say no, but I think that's the next line where, John, if people want to get involved with the CESC, where can they do that? Well, I would start by looking at the website and then thinking about what your level of interest in participation might be. We have donation programs, we have sponsorship programs, and we have partnership programs, depending upon uh, what your level of interest in this is. And I think that's where, where I would start. We are interested in collaboration. We are interested in consortium building. We are interested in working with top-tier folks who really do want to move this forward. This is a huge effort, and you know it takes uh, it takes a lot more than a village. And so we have to be open to that. We have to kind of make sure our egos don't get in the way. We have to make sure that while intellectual property protections are very important and that we're aware of them, that they too don't get in the way to inhibit this. It has to all be pulling in the same direction. Nuanced as it is, I'm optimistic that we can move this forward. 10 years, and it'll be, it'll be a challenge. But if you don't start, you don't get there. Perfect. Well, appreciate your time, John. We'll link everything up in the show notes so that people want to get involved can can find the link and look forward to kind of keeping up to date on what's going on with CESC and having you back soon. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a very enjoyable discussion. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.